we are a church who places ourselves under the authority of God's word. And as God speaks by his grace, by his spirit, we respond sometimes reluctantly. Let's pray before we get into God's word that we'll be ready to respond with obedience. Let's pray. Father, you see who's in here and the different backgrounds we may be from. Maybe there's many of us who in here that are not Christians or maybe those who are, who are having a hard time, even a hard time responding to your word. I just ask, Lord, as your word speaks today, that it would speak loudly, softly through the gospel of grace and encourage us to not only be hearers of the word, but doers as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps some of you have read a book by David Platt called Radical. Good book. He wrote another book called Counterculture. I don't know if anyone has read that. It's really good. His book is a call to to conviction, compassion, and courage to speak the gospel to a variety of challenging issues of our day. And the areas he has in mind are these. Poverty, racism, immigration, orphans, persecution, sex slavery, abortion, same-sex marriage, and pornography. His concern is to have a church that has convictions, compassion, and courage in each of these areas. What he's afraid of is that we as a church under the authority of God's word tend to pick and choose which issues we want to deal with and those issues we want to concede. And our picking and choosing normally revolves around what is most comfortable and least costly for us and our culture. For instance, you may be a person that is really into rescuing those involved in sex trafficking or helping alleviate poverty. And our culture will see that as noble and our culture will likely applaud you. But when it comes to issues of homosexuality or abortion, you are content to stay quiet and say nothing. Now, there are some others in here. You're not ashamed. I mean, you'll speak about the truth of abortion or you'll speak about God's design for sex within your circles of influence and your culture will affirm you. But on issues of racism and immigration, you're content to stay quiet and say nothing. And Platt's point is that as the body of Christ in this culture, we're not trying to seek our comfort. We're trying to stand on the authority of God's word, and at times that will counter our culture. And it's a great question that I want you to consider. It's this. Let me put it up for you. In a world marked by sex slavery and sexual morality, the abandonment of children and the murder of children, racism and persecution, the needs of the poor and the neglect of the widow, how would we act if we fixed our gaze on the holiness, love, goodness, truth, justice, authority, and mercy of God revealed in the gospel. May we be gospel people expressing the truth and love of God in our culture. 
Now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to frustrate you a little bit, is that we're not going to get this all figured out today. What this is, is part one of a two-part sermon. The part one sermon is going to happen in the service here this morning, and part two is going to happen in your ethos community, where you're going to talk about it, flesh it out. What do a lot of these challenging issues look like in day-to-day life? But the where I'm going to root and ground you here this morning is that we want to be a church and we want to be a people that are moving in the direction. Are you ready for it? We are moving in the direction of conviction and courage. We want to be a people from multiple generations rooted in God's word, moving in the direction of conviction and courage. And the fun way we're going to do that this morning on this lovely Mother's Day, is we're going to look at David and Goliath. Why not? We preach through books of the Bible. Whatever comes up, comes up. And this morning, David and Goliath has come up. I have no idea what that has to do with moms. Mothers, don't let your babies grow up to be giants. Instead, let them grow up to be giant slayers. I don't know the connection. Do what you want with that. In this story, it's a true story, we have David, who has great conviction and courage to face head-on that which is opposed to God. But in this story, it's ultimately God and his power to overcome all the forces of evil that are set against him and his kingdom. It's a story that is set in 1 Samuel 17. It is a long passage, 58 verses, and we're going to cover All of them. Are you ready for that? All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokoth and Ezekah and Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Two armies are perched on their individual mountains and poised for war with a valley between them. In this corner, we have the Philistines, and in the other corner, we have the Israelites. It is a pay-per-view event. Keep going. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. A champion would be a warrior who would represent the whole army in hand-to-hand combat with the opposing army's champion. And the winner would subjugate the army of the loser. Representing the Philistines was Goliath, who was nine feet, nine inches tall. No joke. Verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. That would be 125 pounds. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. 
If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath is a very imposing figure, and he's calling to Israel to send their champion to fight with a loser serving the side of the victor. Instead of courage and bravery, we have Saul, along with his army, dismayed and greatly afraid. All right, let's do a little stopping here. You have heard so many sermons on David and Goliath, right? A lot of them. And I want to let you know what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. Maybe you've heard sermons on uh, David and Goliath where they're trying to get you to fight the giants in your life. Fight the giant of worry or the giant of anxiety or school giants like math and science giants or maybe relationship troubles, the giants of your spouse or traffic jams. I don't know. I'm not going there. Just letting you know. If you want to import any giant terminology into your life, then the passage seems to indicate that this is a giant opposed to God and his people. One of the commentators I was following along with, he points to a certain form of a word that is used six times in the passage to refer to reproach, defy, mock, or deride. So what I'm getting at is that this giant is against God. Let me share with you these six times this word is used so you can kind of get a grounding. For example, 1 Samuel 17.10. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. The next passage comes in 1 Samuel 17.25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Verse 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And lastly, verse 45, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This passage has to move beyond our personal struggles and inconveniences where we leave here thinking that we need to fight the giants of school or the giants of traffic jams, and we have to root it in what defies God and his ways in our world. And that is why I'm pointing out those things specifically that go against God, harm his people, and that go against God and harms humans in general. That's why we're going to talk about things that go against God, like religious persecution, sex trafficking, predatory lending, racism, the neglect of the widow and orphan. Ignoring the poor, pornography. These are, I guess you could say, giants in our land that are impacting 
God's people. These are giants that are impacting humans in general. And as Christians, we want to have conviction and courage to deal with it. That's where we're going. Pick it back up in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced to years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. Good news. This is the same David we saw last chapter. He was secretly anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel. But as it stands now, he's just a little shepherd boy who doubles as a food delivery boy, taking provision to his brothers who are on the front lines. Keep going. Verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father house free in Israel. Which means they won't be under the king's taxes or authority and servitude. And David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away their approach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. David appropriately frames the battle. This is not simply a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. This is a battle against an enemy who is approaching Israel and defying God and his people. David is so God-centered that he is injecting theology. He is not saying, oh, this looks like one army against another army, and I guess Goliath's out there. I'm going to go out and fight him. No, he's thinking, okay, God is in this. They are defying God and his people. That Philistine, that giant must die. 
What David has done is he has framed the battle theologically. He is injecting the truth of God in his word and the battle that's about to take place. Many times, as you have conversations of disagreement with your family, extended family, anybody ever go home over Christmas and Thanksgiving and get into a uh, heated argument over an issue with someone in your family? Many of you do. Maybe you have a heated argument in your church or at friends uh, that you work with, or maybe at school. And many times, as you are trying to act like you have these great convictions, what you're actually doing many times is rather than rooting yourself in the Word of God and framing the discussion theologically, you are just rattling off a party line or a cultural philosophy. It's like your convictions are absent of theology and they totally disregard the word of God. And I have seen this way too many times as a pastor over the years. I've interacted with Christians and I've heard the way that they have spoken about immigration or poverty as if God is totally out of the picture. I've interacted with Christians who are just dogging on the poor. I tell you what, That is cruel speech with no room for God's word. It's like you are basing your convictions on a party line or a cultural philosophy and you're dogging the poor. Now, I've also had conversations and interactions with Christians over sexual ethics or conversations about abortion where it's as if God's truth was never consulted, where they just act like that God has no standards at all. And, I, and I, when I have those conversations, I say, you are, you are completely ignorant of what God's word says. You're just speaking a party line. You're speaking a cultural assumption. It's ingrained politics, and it's overriding God's truth. And all of us need to inject theology as we think about the giants who are defying God and his ways. I don't care about your personal made-up convictions absent of the word of God because Christians are supposed to put themselves under God's authority and his word regardless of who's for or against us. Now, before the battle begins, there's a little friendly fire. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, And the people answered him again as before. David's older brothers are messing with him, making fun of him, a little shepherd boy. David's like, what did I say? It's a little friendly fire before the battle, and it comes from those who are supposed to be on the same side and have your back. And at times when you attempt to branch out to counter culture, you may face resistance from a certain friends in your life who claim to be Christians. Maybe they are Christians and My wife and I have experienced this for several years. We've been in the adoption and foster care world for a few years, and we've had our share of friendly fire. Uh, We should make a list of all the foolish things that Christians have said to us. And most have been supportive, but some can be very disruptive. That's friendly fire. I get that. 
And when you face that, if someone's coming after you, what you're supposed to do? Well, I think a good thing to do is do what David did. Moving on, let's go to battle. Let's go. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And then where came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I like David here. Totally exact opposite of Saul. Saul steeped in fear. He's paralyzed. He's abdicating and he's hiding. David, full of faith, he's overt, he's engaged and ready for action. And David, I like his logic. He's like, you know what? I I killed these bears and these lions. I figure I can kill this Philistine. And, And I would think if David was here, he wouldn't boast in his own abilities, but he would boast in God. He is extremely God-centered. He's locked on on God and his authority and his power to pull it off. I want to I kind of stop because I, I don't think that I'm, I'm going to call you out from being afraid to counterculture. That's kind of Saul's issue. He's afraid to push back against the Goliath, against the giant. I don't, I don't think that's your issue. I don't think so. Why don't you take steps out? Like, 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 for example, we are a church for many years now who tries to care for senior citizens who are neglected. We have a program that we're connected with, Senior Connections, and in Evanston, we connect you with seniors who are lonely, right? We also have something in our church where there are at-risk youth in uh, Evanston who are very vulnerable and have a lot of issues going on in their life where you can go and mentor them. We also have something going on. We have a connection where kids, are, uh, their families are having a hard time going through a difficult patch, and we welcome them into our homes through safe families. These are many opportunities that we give in our church and other opportunities. The question I have for you is, what has caused you not to go into that battle? Well, why haven't you done anything? And when would I say, it's because you're scared? I don't think you're scared. The reason why I don't think that you have gone into battle to do these things that are bringing compassion to our culture with conviction and courage, I think one of the reasons why uh, you're not doing it, I'm just as guilty, is because I believe that you are caught up in a variety of trivial matters. Rather than doing that which is important in our culture and caring through the gospel of others, I think you're just caught up in triviality. Me too. And it looks different for each of us. But I want to give you what I believe to be a picture of the epitome of triviality. And I want this image to stay in your head of our failure to engage. Are you ready for this? I heard of an activity in Chicago where people get together. And they get together to drink beer, 
and to watch turtles race. Now, I'm not against and I'm not dogging on them for drinking beer. I'm not dogging on them for watching turtles race. I'm dogging the connection of drinking beer and watching turtles race. I mean, can you think of anything more trivial than that? Hey, man, let's go drink beer and watch turtles race. What is that? But, but, but think about the trivial things that we do in our life rather than engaging people or issues. I mean, can, can you imagine? We have all these kids at risk in Evanston, and rather than just going to hang with them, we're cheering on turtles. We have a variety of widows in need, and we're Wasting time? Are you seeing the connection here? I'm not thinking that you have fear issues. I'm thinking that you have just trivial stuff that you're caught up in that makes you avoid the, the challenges in our culture that you are called by the gospel to engage. So I don't think you're a cowering Saul. I just think you're doing something else that's trivial. When it's all said and done, if we're neglecting people who need our care and our concern and issues that God is calling us to engage, and we're saying, God, I'm, I'm going to be over here drinking beer and watching turtles, that's, that's not good. Let's keep going. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. What a great, great image here. Saul's just trying to make David into like this little giant by trying on a variety of gear. But that's not David's style. He picks up five smooth stones to go along with his sling. Now, I wish I had a picture to show you. I've actually been to the Valley of Elah, and I'm picking up these stones. I'm about to sling them at the giant. It's really goofy, but I, I can't find it. So off to the battle. Here we go. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you have come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. He is talking trash. I like that David's response, David responds with some godly trash talking. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Man, David is framing this battle theologically. He's like, the Lord saves. The Lord will give you into our hand. The the Lord will deliver you to us. All the earth is going to know that God is God, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. That is a man who's rooted in conviction and courage and the authority of God. He's not saying, I'm an awesome warrior. It's all about God. The battle is the Lord's. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Some think the stone could reach about the speeds of 100 and 150 miles an hour, which could explain how it sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. David finishes him off. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered the camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As a child, you probably don't remember that in your children's Bibles. The chopping off of the head, the leaving the body behind for the birds and the wild beasts, it's usually left out of children's Bibles. But it goes to show you how decisive and humiliating this victory of God is over his enemies. Finish it up, verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. David is in the infancy stages of being acknowledged for this great victory, and he will soon replace Saul as the next king because he was a man who was locked in on God, which fueled his conviction and courage. The connection to us is pretty obvious. We want to be fueled with conviction and courage because we are people who are locked in on God that deal with a lot of issues challenging the heart of God. We want to face those challenges within the body of Christ and our culture that are pushing back to harm people in general. And we're not trying to seek comfort in our culture, but counter our culture. All of this counter culture stuff I'm talking about is rooted in 
the gospel, which is very counterculture. If you are a Christian, and by that, I mean someone who actually believes the authority of God's word, the word of God is very countercultural, specifically in the gospel, because the gospel pretty much says this, you are not God. In fact, the gospel says you have offended God. The Bible even goes further to say God is angry. In fact, his wrath is aimed right at you. You are a target of his anger and wrath because of your sin. You die right now with his wrath aimed on you. You will go to hell. I'm not making that up. You don't get any more counterculture than that, right? But we don't stop there. We say, but there's some good news. Jesus Christ came, the most countercultural person ever. And here's the greatest truth ever. On the cross, God's anger and wrath is aimed at him in your place. You sinned, he did not. He gets the punishment, you get to go free. And the wrath and anger of God is poured on him. He dies and buried and raises again. Victory over Satan, sin, and death. Wrath of God turned away. Anyone who wants to repent and believe in Jesus can be forgiven. That is an amazing message. But here is where it gets really countercultural for us. And I want to make sure you get this, all right? You ready for this? What we're saying is that if you repent and believe in Jesus, you be, can be forgiven. This is for the, the woman who has had an abortion and the man that has made her do it. You can be forgiven in Jesus. But let's take it up a notch. Guess who else can be forgiven? You ready? The abortionist. That's counterculture right there. Through repentance and faith, the abortionist can be forgiven as well. The persecutor of Christians can be forgiven through repentance and faith. Those who are trafficking children can find forgiveness through repentance and faith in Jesus. Those of you who have fallen and bowed before the idol of idolatry can be forgiven through repentance and faith in Jesus, but also the pornographers can be forgiven through their faith in Jesus. Are you seeing how this is just a radical message that just goes out and we're not pounding people on the head. We're saying, you can actually be forgiven through repentance and faith in Jesus. That is is revolutionary. That is countercultural. And those who accept and embrace this gospel of grace and truth, rooted in the authority of God's word, not playing games, not excusing sin, but finding forgiveness in Jesus... We have convictions and courage to speak on a variety of issues. We have conviction and courage to act on a variety of issues. Let's think of the past. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he spoke out against racism with conviction and courage. He was not a man that was like, you know what, I think I'm just going to go drink beer and watch Turtles. Think of Rosa Parks and her boldness to not give up her bus seat to a white passenger during segregation. That takes conviction and courage. Think of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you know this, but the church as a whole, the German church, did you know the German church that supposedly believed the Bible? They did not push back against Hitler, Nazi philosophy, and the brutality. Did you, you know that? They didn't oppose them on the most part. 
I read a story about one guy. He said, you know, we were in this church, and we would do our sermons, and we would sing hymns. And on Sunday morning, trains would pass by carrying Jews. And in the train, we could hear the Jews screaming as they're going to death camps. And you know what we did? We sang our hymns louder. Not Bonhoeffer. Push back all the way to his death. And I'm telling you, there are issues and things going on in our culture through neglect, brutality, and we can be caught up in trivialities and miss it. I'm going to leave you with a modern example of David, <laughs> this guy named Daniel Walker. He was a detective in New Zealand for 20 years, and afterward he used his skills to infiltrate brothels around the world and bring traffickers to justice and free hundreds of girls. He would enter, this is what he would do, he would enter a brothel with a hidden camera, pay for a girl, and then just have a conversation with her. And he would do this in order to bring those who were in control to justice. One time he was in Colombia and surrounded in a brothel with guys with guns. So in order to keep his cover, he danced with a girl who was about 16. And while he's dancing, he is filming all around. And he said that he used to be really scared to go into these places. I mean, I would be scared. But he said that he realized that he did not need to be scared because he was the dangerous one. He brought justice and freedom to those places. And I want to close by giving you a quote of his. This is pretty, this is pretty cool. How much different would it be if Christians saw themselves as the dangerous ones? We are bearers of the most wild, dangerous, untamed force for good in this world. I would love to call you a dangerous one. I would love for you to call me a dangerous one. But the words that I would often use sometimes to describe me, sometimes to describe you, is I would call you the trivial one. Where you're pulling back, you're watching turtles, whatever your trivial thing is, when there are children to be cared for, when there are widows to be visited, when there are issues to be addressed, when people are being slammed, when people are being persecuted, there is an engagement that needs to happen, and often I am just watching turtles. I want to be a dangerous one. I want you to be a dangerous one who actually engages the world with conviction and courage rooted in the gospel of God. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that we would not and would no longer continue as the trivial ones, that we would be people of conviction, that we would not ignore that outside of these walls there is a lot of pain, there is a lot of hurt, there is a lot of abuse, there is a lot of neglect, there is a lot of sin. People need the gospel. People need the truth of your word. People need us to reach out with conviction and compassion and courage. Show us our place. Show us our place. Where do we fit as individuals? Where do we fit as a church? Surely it does not mean we fit in the world of triviality.
may we be the dangerous ones bringing this gospel force for good in our world in these areas that are very difficult. And may we be full of compassion and grace and not waffling, not picking and choosing which ones we will take as a church and which ones we'll disengage from. May we stand strong. When your word speaks, may we speak. When your word calls us to act, may we act. And may we do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.